So back in 1987, I think it was, uh, Ann and I got to spend a couple of weeks in Poland. We were invited to go to a conference of Catholic students from all over Europe, and uh, they found out about us. We found out about them. We actually called them up. You could make a phone call to Poland then, which was pretty, a, a pretty amazing thing to think back uh, before the Iron Curtain fell, that you could do all that, that sort of stuff. And so we called them up and we said, hey, we've heard about this conference. We got an invitation, but, um, but you need to know we're Protestants. And they said, hey, that's no problem. We've actually never met any Protestants. Um, we've never met any Americans either, so why don't you come on over and um, we'll hang out together. And we did, and we spent two weeks with these folks, and it was just a, it was a, a really awesome experience getting to know people um, from all over Europe, although mostly uh, from behind the Iron Curtain, mostly uh, from Poland, in fact, and a, f and a few other countries as well. Uh, we're talking about questions about what is it like uh, to live as a follower of Jesus uh, in your particular country? And so we're talking back and forth about these things. But what really struck me was uh, the lifestyle, the attitude, the heart uh, that these Polish people had with whom we spent these couple of weeks. And if you're at all familiar what was going on uh, in Poland then, the whole sol solidarity thing had just kind of finished, although you could see signs of it uh, everywhere all over the country. And Poland at that time was probably the least wealthy, the poorest of all of the Soviet bloc countries. And the Poles explained to us that there was this sort of uh, inverse correlation between freedom and prosperity when you were living under Soviet domination. Uh, in Poland, they had the least prosperity. There were shortages, there was rationing. If you wanted to have dinner, you know, when you, when you wanted to have dinner, you didn't plan out ahead of time. You would just show up at the store, find out what they had, and that's what you would make for dinner at that point. Basic necessities like toilet paper were often uh, in short supply, which is why they told us to bring some when we came, which we were very grateful, obviously, that we did. But they talked about their lack, of, uh, their lack of prosperity, but the relative freedom that they had compared to so many of the other Soviet bloc countries. So for example, in Eastern Europe, they said, was the most prosperous, relatively speaking, of the Soviet bloc countries, but they had the least amount of freedom. Poland had the most freedom, but the least physical prosperity. And we asked them, would you ever trade that? And they said, absolutely not. We're grateful for what we have. We're glad that we have these freedoms and we've got enough to live on. And so we're, we're happy with that. So one evening after our normal dinner with them, which that night had been, I think it was uh, beet soup and some bread and then something that they called meat. Um, I lost about like 10, 15 pounds uh, in, in, in those two weeks. After that dinner, they brought out this small box and it's a box that they had been keeping for the past couple of years and they opened it up and they took out six, seven, eight, nine packages of American candy. And we're like, where did you get American candy all the way over here? And they wouldn't tell us and I'm sure it was super expensive, but they had been saving kind of this, this most prized treasure for two years. And when they had these special guests, they wanted to share their best with us. How, how could we accept that kind of generosity? We're just kind of sitting there like, how can we take this 
that's obviously so important to them. But how can we not receive that kind of generosity that they were offering to us? And as I've stepped back over the years and looked back on that piece of that encounter, but really on the entire two weeks, I'm just blown away by how well they lived with less. They had so much less than we had. I mean, we could walk into any store here in the United States and have a hundred times as much candy that they had, and it would all be in date, you know. But for them, this was the most important thing that they had, and they wanted to share that with us. These people were grateful for what they had. They were incredibly generous, and they were living well with less. And I have to stop and ask myself, how well do I live with more? Because I have so much more. We have so much more, and we talked about this last week. When we're compared, this area, this community in which we live, when we compare ourselves with the rest of the United States, when we compare ourselves especially with the rest of the world, we have so much more. God has blessed us in so many ways. And the question is, how do we live well with all of the more that God has given us? And last week we talked about this and we said a couple of the keys are, first of all, it's okay, it's actually good to enjoy what God has given us. We don't need to feel guilty for having more. We should enjoy the blessings that God has given us. But we shouldn't keep them just for ourselves. We should share them with the people around us. We should be generous to the people who are in need, following the example of the Polish people who were so incredibly generous to us because they loved us and they wanted to honor us in that particular way. But we also need to be careful that we trust God and not the good gifts that God has given us. Because if we end up trusting the gifts instead of the giver, then we're allowing the gifts to replace the God who gave us those gifts. And so we talked about those different things last week. And there are a lot of advantages to having more, a lot of blessings to having more, but there are also some dangers to that. And uh, one philosopher puts it this way. He says, wealth is like seawater. The more we drink, the thirstier we become, and the same is true of fame. If we get more wealth, we want more wealth. If we get more power, we want more power. When we have more fame, we want more fame. And it's good to enjoy the good gifts that God has given us, but if we're not careful, we're going to want more and more and more. And that kind of greed can cause us to, to turn inward and to become focused on ourselves and our own little worlds, and our worlds shrink to the size of our bank accounts, and we end up worshiping the gift instead of the giver who gave us these things. Pastor Andy Stanley puts it this way. He said, greed is the assumption that everything placed in our hands is for our consumption. And God says, yes, I've given it to you, and you can consume, and you can enjoy, but that's not the only reason, God says, that he's given it to us. But if that's the way we look at everything, if everything that we have is for us, then we become greedy and our worlds shrink and we find ourselves alienated from the people around us, but also from God. And this morning, I want to look at a story in the Bible, an encounter that Jesus had with a man who was incredibly wealthy, but he was also incredibly greedy And that greed had alienated him both from the people around him as well as from God. And it's found in uh, the Gospel of Luke, the the biography of Jesus uh, written by a man named Luke. 
in, in chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. I want to read pieces of it and talk our way through it. So Jesus entered Jericho, and he was passing through. And a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief ta tax collector, and he was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he couldn't see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. So I've probably read this story, I don't know, several dozen times in my life. And every time I read it, I want to ask myself the question, why did Zacchaeus, he was short, I get that, but why did he have to climb up a tree in order to see Jesus? Why didn't he just do what the rest of, of the short people of the world would do, kind of push his way through the crowd, say, excuse me, let me come up, stand in the front of the crowd so I can see Jesus here. Because look, you know, we're nice people and we'll let people who are shorter than we are stand in front of us because they're not going to block our vision. Why wouldn't that happen to, to, to Zacchaeus. I think the problem is that he worked for the IRS, you know, the Israeli Revenue Service there. You know, it's one of those things where you ask him, so, so what do you do for a living? He says, well, I, I could tell you, but I'd have to audit you, you know? And in those days, you know, we, we sort of joke about IRS agents here, but in those days, it's a completely different situation because Israel at that time was under Roman domination, right? Rome had come in and they had conquered Israel and they had imposed these incredibly oppressive taxes on Israel. So the taxes that Zacchaeus was collecting were taxes that were ultimately going to the conquering power, Rome. And the Jews didn't like that. They didn't want to have to pay taxes to Rome. It was hard enough that they had to pay taxes to their own government. They also had to pay taxes to this foreign government. And then you've got one of their own, because Zacchaeus is a Jew. And he had been hired by Rome to collect taxes for them. So for, from the perspective of Zacchaeus' fellow Israeli citizens, Zacchaeus is a traitor. He's a turncoat. He's someone who's gone over to the enemy and he's working for them. And the way that Zacchaeus made his money, he didn't get a salary. Rome said, you've got to collect this much in taxes. And whatever you collect beyond that, you can keep. And Zacchaeus was really good at collecting beyond what Rome said the minimum requirement was. So Zacchaeus had become rich at the expense of his fellow countrymen. So you've got this guy who works for the enemy, he's collecting taxes that they hate, and effectively he's stealing from his fellow citizens and he's protected by Rome. So you think they're gonna let him through the crowd to stand in front? So that's why Zacchaeus has to climb up to the top of the tree. He's, he's viewed as, as one of the lowest life forms that you could have in Israeli society. So verse, verse 5, Jesus reaches the spot, he looks up and he says to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, come on down immediately, I must stay at your house today. So Zacchaeus came down at once and he welcomed him gladly. You notice what happens? Zacchaeus is up in the tree, Jesus looks up and he says, hey, Zac, come on down, I'm going to have lunch at your house today. Imagine what would happen, you know, we're, you're walking out today and I say, hey, John, Mary, let's have lunch at your house today. How'd you feel about that, right? It's, it's, you know, it's kind of a little bit, a little bit of chutzpah there on Jesus' part. But actually, in that society, that was an honor for Zacchaeus because Jesus is viewed as this really important rabbi. And it's an honor for him to say to Zacchaeus, I want to come to your house today. I want to hang out with you. And so Zacchaeus isn't phased for a second by Jesus inviting himself over to Zacchaeus' house, but other people 
We're scandalized by what happens. Watch this. All the people saw this and they began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner? He's gone to be the guest of a sinner? The scandal is not that Jesus invited himself to someone's house. It's that he invited himself to that someone's house. Nobody expected that. I mean, from their perspective, what is a good Jewish boy like Jesus doing, hanging out with a low life like Zacchaeus. Nobody expects that. But Zacchaeus stood up, verse 8, and he said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times that amount. And if you're familiar with uh, the Old Testament law, if you're familiar with the, the rules and regulations uh, for Israel under which the people were living at that time, you know that they were required to give 10%. And Zacchaeus says, yeah, the requirement's 10%, but I'm going to give 50%. They considered 20% to be generous. Zacchaeus says, I'm going to give half of what I have to help out the poor and the needy. And then if you had defrauded somebody, if you had cheated somebody, and Zacchaeus made a living doing this, you had to pay back 120%. You had to pay back what you had taken plus an extra 20% beyond that. Zacchaeus says, I'm not stopping there. I'm doing 400%. I've been given back four times what I've stolen from people. And nobody expected that kind of generosity, let alone from somebody like Zacchaeus. Something had happened to Zacchaeus. And the question becomes, what is it that motivated Zacchaeus to do, in one case, hugely more than he would ever be expected to do? What is it that motivated Zacchaeus to give away more than half of his wealth? And when you think about the motives that we have for, for being generous, sometimes our motivation is, is because there are other people who are in need. We hear about a need and we're moved to help out, right? We, we've heard about the situation in Paris. We've prayed for the situation in Paris. And if there's opportunity for us to help out, to give, we're gonna wanna do that because we know what it's like to have a situation like that so close to home. And we're moved in our hearts to help out those people who are in need. We hear about situations about people who are starving all over the world. And our hearts are moved and we wanna to give to them. And millions and millions of people are helped every year by people who are motivated because of the needs that they hear about that. But sometimes that need-based motivation can subtly turn into a guilt-based motivation. I heard about a, a, a pretty well-known celebrity some years ago and he was uh, speaking to a large group of people, and he, his thoughts turned uh, to the problem of world hunger, and he was trying to encourage them, he was trying to motivate them to get involved in the cause of ending world hunger. And so he stood up on the stage, and he started clapping, and he said, every time that I clap, a child dies of starvation. And some guy in the front, yell, front row yells out, then stop doing it, you know? And I don't know if he was trying to guilt manipulate them or not. 
I'd like to think that his heart was good and that he was just so motivated by the needs of those people that he wanted to do anything that he could to help people to share in that motivation and to be generous. But the effect, at least on that one person, was that it felt like guilt manipulation. And we've got to be so careful not to let our zeal turn into guilt manipulation. We also need to be careful not to, to let ourselves feel guilty just because we have more. There's nothing wrong with having more. It's a blessing that God has given us and we can enjoy those blessings, but we also ought to want to share with those who are less fortunate than we are. And, and guilt isn't the best motivation. Their needs is a whole lot better motivation than guilt is. And in fact, am I really being generous with somebody if I'm doing it from a guilty heart rather than a heart that's overflowing and wanting to help those people in need? And then sometimes, sometimes we're generous because we expect something in return. Sometimes we give because we've got the expectation of receiving. I was talking about this uh, message a couple of weeks ago with some folks, and one of them shared that she had an aunt who gave her nephew a birthday present, and the nephew never wrote her a thank you note, and so she vowed, I will never give him a present again. Was she being generous when she gave him that birthday present, or was she conducting a business transaction where she was trading a birthday present for a thank you note. And I understand it's difficult to be generous when people aren't grateful, when people aren't thankful for the things that we do for them, for the things that we give them. But if our motivation is to receive something back from them, then are we essentially being generous or are we just trading or bartering with them? And we do that. We do that sometimes with, with birthday presents. Uh, we we do things in order to impress other people. We do things in order to gain favor with other people because we think that they've got something that, that we want, like love or power or access to someone who's important or they can raise our social standing. So when we're kind and we're generous to somebody in order to receive something in return, are we really being generous or in some sense, aren't we being selfish? And we can actually, if we're honest with ourselves, we can do the same thing with God. God, I'll give to the poor and needy, and I want you to bless me because I'm doing that. Or I give to the poor and needy, or I give to church because I think that God will love me more. Or I've done something wrong. I know that I've sinned, and I want to make it up to God. And so I do that by giving, by being what I think is generous. But in a sense, aren't I really just bartering with God? rather than being generous. And so we gotta really watch for our motivations because true generosity doesn't give with the expectation of receiving something in return. It gives out of love. It gives out of a desire to meet a need. It gives out of a, out of a heart that's overflowing with gratitude for what God has done for us. When God is generous to us, he isn't trying to get something back from us. I mean, think about it. What do I have? What do we have that God needs? Everything we have comes from God. So when he's being generous to us, certainly he's not trying to get something back from us because everything we have has come from him. 
We don't need to try to earn his love. He offers it to us because of who he is, not because of who we are, because of anything that we've done. So God's generosity leads to our generosity and not the other way around. And that's what happened with Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus wasn't motivated by guilt. He wasn't motivated by the desire to earn favor from Jesus. He wasn't motivated by the desire to gain the approval of the people whom he cheated. He wasn't even motivated by their need. I don't think Zacchaeus was actually motivated by the need of his fellow Israelites, though that would have been a fine motivation for him to have. That would have been a good motivation for him to have. I think what happened is that Zacchaeus was so overwhelmed by what Jesus did for him that he couldn't help but be generous. I mean, think about Zacchaeus. He knew he was an outcast. He knew he was despised by the people. He knew why the crowd wouldn't let him get up to the front. He knew why he was lonely all the time. Why would anybody, anybody be kind to him? Why would this rabbi, why would this incredible teacher, why would this public figure want to come to Zacchaeus's house? He's blown away by the incredible love and grace, the unexpected generosity of Jesus. And so when Jesus showed him grace, grace that he knew that he didn't deserve, Zacchaeus was so overwhelmed that the generosity just spontaneously erupted from him and he couldn't contain himself. And he said, I'm giving away half of my possessions to those who are in need. And watch how Jesus responds in verses nine and 10. Jesus says to Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man, that's the way that Jesus was referring to himself. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Watch what Jesus is saying. He is not saying salvation has come to this house because Zacchaeus was generous. He's saying salvation has come to this house because Jesus has come to this house. It's the presence of Jesus that brought salvation to this house, not the generosity of Zacchaeus. Jesus wasn't generous to Zacchaeus because Zacchaeus had been generous to other people. Zacchaeus was generous to other people because Jesus had been generous to him. We don't have to change our lives in order to come to Jesus. We don't have to be good enough to earn his favor. We don't have to be generous enough. We don't have to be caring enough. We don't have to be whatever enough in order to merit the grace of God, the generosity of Jesus. All we need to do is be like Zacchaeus, recognize our need and look to Jesus to meet that need. And when we do, that's when he pours out his grace and his incredible, unexpected generosity on us. And when he does that, that's when our lives are gonna change. Zacchaeus lived in a society, he lived in a community, he lived with people who expected that they would give 10% of their income to those who were in need. Zacchaeus says, no, I'm not giving 10%, I'm giving 50%. He was expected to repay 120% to the people whom he cheated. 
But he said, I'm going to go beyond those expectations. I'm going to give 400% back to the people whom I've cheated. And we live in a society that's got expectations in terms of our generosity as well. Your next door neighbor's daughter rings the, rings the doorbell and says, hi, I'm selling Girl Scout cookies. You're expected to buy at least two boxes of Girl Scout cookies. One of them has to be Thin Mints. That's, that's important. At least in my house, we got to buy some Thin Mints. You know? And we're expected to do that. And we don't begrudge that. We're happy to do that. And we send our kid next door, and she sells or he sells whatever it is that they're trying to sell. It's an expectation that we have in the society in which we live. You're invited to go to a fundraising dinner. You're expected to eat the rubber chicken and make a donation. You know? And that's part of the expectation of living in our society. We go to church and we give. We send a check to the college from which we graduated. We do that. We're expected to do that. We give to the Thanksgiving food drive. Those are the things that we're expected to do in our society. That's the kind of generosity that's expected with us. But if we really want to live well with more... We don't want to just meet the expectations that our society puts on us. We want to exceed those expectations because if God has exceeded our expectations in terms of his generosity to us, and if that's really settled into our hearts, then we're going to want to be like Zacchaeus. We're going to naturally be like Zacchaeus, and we're going to exceed those expectations of generosity. Think about what God did for us. Who would have expected, which of us would have expected the creator of the universe to be born as a little baby and go through all of the, all of the difficulties of living life as a human being? I mean, God going through puberty, right? Think about that. Think about all the suffering that Jesus went through. Who would have thought that the creator of the universe was going to do that for us? Who would have thought that our heavenly father would give that which was most precious to him, give his only son so that we could be restored to a right relationship with him when our relationship with him was not broken because of anything that he did, but it's broken because of things that we've done. So who would have expected God to do that for us? When we're captivated by that unexpected and undeserved generosity, the more, when we're captivated by that, we're going to want to share the gifts that he's given to us. And the more that we understand and appreciate and enjoy the good gifts that God has given to us, the more that we're going to want to share those with others. We're the more that we're going to want to participate in his plan of helping to restore and to redeem this broken world. And we live in a world that's broken. We live in a world with needy people, both physically but also spiritually. And the more we appreciate the blessings that God has given us, both physical and spiritual, the more we're going to want to use those blessings to help others, to meet the physical needs of the people around us to meet the spiritual needs of the people around us, to point them to the one who's the ultimate source of all of the good things that we have, the one who has showered us with unexpected generosity and undeserved grace. 
And the more that we appreciate and the more that we appropriate the incredible blessings that God has given us, the more that we're going to want to share those blessings with the people who are around us. And when we do that, that's when we're going to be living well with more. Let's pray for a minute. Father, I thank you. I thank you for the unbelievable generosity that you have shown us. I thank you for the grace that you've shown us. I I thank you that when we didn't deserve it, when we didn't expect it, you gave to us what we needed most. I thank you for the ultimate gift that you gave us, the gift of your son, so that we could be restored to a right relationship with you. And I pray that you would capture our hearts, pray that you would capture our minds, I pray that you would capture our lives and I pray that we would appreciate more and more and more the incredible blessings that you have given us and that rather than than keeping them all to ourselves, I, I pray that our hearts would overflow with gratefulness to you for the incredible gifts that you've given us and that we would want to be generous to the people around us. I thank you that you want us to enjoy what you've given, but I pray that we also wouldn't become greedy and hoard all that you've given to us as well. And I pray that as we're generous to those around us, I pray that their needs would be being met and that they would be seeing that generosity, recognizing that ultimately it comes from you. And I pray that as they see that, they would turn to you and they would find that undeserved grace and that unexpected generosity that you are offering to them as well in Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.